Welcome back, everyone, to the OGs. I am Don Povia, joined after a two-week hiatus by Kyle Bunch. Kyle, what's going on? Welcome. Good to see your smiling face. Yeah, it's uh, it's good to have you back. I'm glad to see you survived survived uh, Disney World and Orlando. Well, they they had they had their stuff under control. I guess it's their livelihood to get people in those parks. So. Um, yeah, they uh, they made sure of it. It was funny though. Like people were like, "Well, it wasn't too crowded," but they only put half the people on the rides, so it still takes it all kind of balances out. Still takes as long to do everything, but it was cool. The were the, the actual Disney characters weren't like the princesses weren't in masks, were they? No, they weren't. They actually did a lot of like not big parades, but like more just like a float with like five princesses on it, and they did it very frequently. And then like up top. Like when you walk in, like Pooh and Tigger and all them. So nobody had masks on, princess wise, but you weren't able to just take a picture with them. It was more uh, circling through, which was exciting. I was a little worried my youngest one wouldn't get the full experience, but I don't think she knew. She didn't know the difference. So it was all right. Nice. And nice. no fast passes, right? In the lines, I think they don't have that going on right now where you could pay extra money mm-hmm. to kind of get ahead. No fast pass. We we did. We were with somebody that was disabled, though. Um, I will say that. Thank goodness for that, <laughs> because some of those lines uh, did take a while. So they didn't let you fast pass. But if you had somebody with disability, essentially, we were able to use sort of the same thing as as the fast pass. Uh, but anyway, that's enough about me. Let's introduce the voice that you just heard. Welcome to the show. TK Gore. TK, I can't think of somebody, Kyle, uh, as supportive of us over the years as TK has been. So, TK, thanks for bringing this full circle and joining us today. Uh, I'm honored. I'm truly honored to be a guest. I, I, I'm excited. I saw you guys were doing the OGs and I was like, oh, those are my guys. Blogs with balls. Like, Maybe one day I'll get the nod, you know, you know, so finally I got the call. I got the call to the bullpen. I've been sitting out there, you know, practicing and uh, Kyle was nice to kind of give me a ring. And I was like, oh man, let, let me warm up, you know? So I'm here. Thank you. You got it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Kyle, Kyle finally doing some booking here, huh? Uh, exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm on, was this one or two out of 13 so far? So, um, you know. That's quite all right. Yeah, we so, should have done this like uh, the, the Hot Smartless podcast where like Kyle books me as a surprise guest and then he gives me the intro and Don's like trying to guess who is this who is this guest. I don't, I don't know if you guys listen to Smartless, but my wife's got me hooked on it and it's so good, the camaraderie uh, with those three. They, they, I mean, they probably just watched you two and your camaraderie over the years, right? Well, I'll tell you, that's about as much prep as we do for these shows. So, we, you know, maybe it wouldn't be too different so once, I, once, I, once I get the guests uh, in. But we've got TK. TK, you spent quite a few years at Comcast, uh, you know, a Philly sports mm-hmm. fan, you know, kind of wearing that Comcast pride out in the Midwest in oh, Chicago oh, you, for us. Do you see that behind me? That's just I do. for you. Do you see that? I appreciate it. <laughs> you know, yeah, when I had I the other setup, I... I used to do that with yeah. my old setup. I would put some props in the back, reflective of the uh, of the guests. I miss the props. That was, yeah, that was purposely brought up for this conversation, just so Don and I could bond. Not to leave you out, Kyle, about our our Philly fandom, but I don't have like the built-ins yet to kind of showcase a lot of my swag and stuff. So, but it's just a just a helmet. So, but yeah, I as you mentioned, longtime Comcast NBC Sports guy here in Chicago. Um, I think I was there for about over nine years. And that's when I first kind of came in contact with YouTube, probably back in 2009, 2010. Uh, Blogs with Balls came on the road to Chicago to Wrigley Field of all places. <laughs> and so um, you guys were kind to extend an invite to me to be on one of the panels, um, talk a little bit about team content. And really at that time, it was the rush to more user-generated blogging content and it, it, it felt like the panel I was on was more of a face-off between uh, Bleacher Report and SB Nation, you know, and I was just kind of sitting there in the middle of it while I was going on trying to represent, you know, the mainstream legacy media business and what we're doing to create more relevant, engaging content to drive tune in. And, you know, this is even before live streaming of live, live sports, which seems uh, very old school. Yeah, it. Go ahead, Kyle. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, it's that we hit on that one a little bit before, had a couple of people on that, uh, you know, on either side or definitely on the Bleacher Report side from back in those days where I think that was particularly heated. And it's kind of 
I guess funny now as I think about it that in a certain sense, neither really want both were right. Neither really won in the, I mean, in the end, like Bleacher Report did very well, but that whole model has nothing to do with who Bleacher Report is today at all. Like that was, that fell by the wayside years ago. Um, and, you know, meanwhile, the SB Nation model, I mean, you just, uh, and this is the part, I guess I'll lead to after this towards ramble towards a question, you know, to what extent did a lot of this promise of, of a lot of the new media just, suddenly find itself competing with the old guard and everybody was fighting for less and less attention as there were more and more and more competition coming in. I feel like there was that, that wave when Vox and Vice were going to change everything. And all of a sudden they're all just kind of in the same pool fighting for the same ad dollars. Right. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head. And I'll credit this term with my former AOL colleague, Tom Richardson, who was a, a general manager while I was there and, formerly like an NHL guy running digital, like this is in the 90s, and then also NFL, the attention economy, right? And still to this day, everyone is just competing for attention and eyeballs and time spent. And here we kick around these ideas of key metrics and you know ratings or GRPs and visits and impressions. But at the end of the day, it's mindshare, it's attention, and the battle is even more Game of Thrones-like today than it was then. So... Bleacher Report and SB Nation have gone in completely different directions. I mean, good for Bleacher Report getting acquired by Turner and being a part of their ecosystem, which I think it's a nice fit. I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's about driving eyeballs to the live events, now betting. But you look at SB Nation, and it's more like part of the Vox family. And they continue to acquire a lot of cool stuff and cross-promote, but there were some heavy investor dollars too in them. Even NBCU, I think, dumped in like 500, 600 mil to just kind of figure it out, maybe promote Olympics. But everyone, you know, this business is like a Petri dish, right? And we're all like a little bit of scientists and we want to make some bets, see if they pan out uh, and see where they go. But you're right. It, it, there's nowhere near this war of Bleacher Report versus SB Nation. It's like you could write a chapter in the history book about it because it's you know, there's no, they're not competing. Everyone's competing with each other right now. So, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of the, uh, the history books, uh, you come from the, the legendary lineage of, of AOL and the fan house days, um, you know, going back there, um, you know, what was your mm -hmm. perspective of, I guess, the state of the industry, you know, with, with the, uh, convenience of hindsight, um, you know, we, we look at it as really, you know, the, the forefront of all these companies that you're talking about, particularly uh, the direction that, you know, the, the sports coverage had gone, um, you know, yeah. and a, a company like AOL, you know, which you never thought would go anywhere um, is sort of irrelevant <laughs> now. So, you know, going back to those yeah. days, like, you know, how do you, how do you reflect upon them and the things that you were doing and, and how the industry shifted since? Wow. Great question. You know, and I do reflect a lot and I realize when I think of AOL, I had it so good, meaning so much fun, so much energy, supercharged, super smart people, working hard not to outdo each other, but working hard for a common belief that you're building this platform, you know, uh, commercial online service is what we called it, right? To get people to connect with each other as valuable as the phone uh, or television. And I think we had that mission statement on the plaque throughout the campus. It was born in Vienna, Virginia very small office. And then it grew out into Dulles, Virginia, right next to the airport, having like about seven buildings. So I joined in about 98. I had been building a lot of relationships there, um, mainly because of Jimmy Lynn, who Kyle and I were just talking about Friday that, you know, I mean, I just introduced Kyle to Jimmy and Jimmy Lynn is like synonymous with AOL. If you were to ask Steve Case, Ted Leonsis, Jonathan Miller, Bob Pittman, Jimmy Lynn is one of those guys top to bottom networks the pipeline like no other, good human being. And we could talk more about him. But when I reflect on AOL, I arrive there, we acquire movie phone. I mean, you remember movie phone, you would call a phone number to hear a recording to go to the movies. Netscape, CompuServe, it was unbelievable. So you're sitting there, everyone's working hard. You're watching the stock price. It's just splitting and splitting. And you know, you're getting options for the first time. And you're just like a young 20 something and you're making cool content and you're connecting with people. So to your point, like, what did that do? I feel like AOL truly paved the way for so many things that are relevant today. 
I mean, it's going to sound archaic, but message boards, community, AOL was built on community. It was built on content with a lot of the properties and relationships. I'll tell you one interesting story is I remember Jimmy and I were sitting with Ted Leonsis and we got to know him through AOL and, you know, AOL acquired one of his companies and he was this grandiose person in the office, very, very, very large presence and serves his, his love and voice. And we would sometimes go spend time in his office, you know, and at the time he just acquired the Washington Capitals and you hear these stories about he would type on his keyboard and respond to every fan. And so Twitter became like a really big thing at the time, you know, and if you think about when we joined Twitter or, you know, we, we became like members of Twitter, active users, probably 2008, 2009, if you're an early adopter of it. So I remember Ted told this story that Jack Dorsey and a couple of the other guys were scared that one day Ted and AOL would come calling because of like IP and other sort of intellectual property rights. And Ted's like, what are you talking about? What they said is when they were kind of creating the idea of Twitter, they thought when you use AOL, Instant Messenger or AIM, you know, you have your buddy list up and sometimes you'll, you'll, go, you'll, you'll go away, meaning you'll go to the bathroom, you'll go take a meal, be, be right back. Or then we started to allow the personalize it like, hey, doing a podcast right now with Kyle, check back in an hour. So this idea came from super short form content that was basically 140 characters. You couldn't go any more than that on AIM. So that's where the 140 character thing came from. So if you think about it, the concept of Twitter spawned out of AOL and AIM. And I think that's such a cool thing because I think Twitter is one of the killer apps out there. And it's a great way to connect with people around live sports and other news events. But that's something I think about today is, wow, like not only did AOL invent within AOL, but it really spawned a lot of innovation out there because what we were doing, we were really pioneers. And then when you're in your 20s, and you're doing that shit, you don't really realize what you're actually doing, you know? So I'm not saying it's like Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg, like go and break things, but we were just making things and trying things and, and we had the audience. I mean, it was, yeah. we would crush websites, right? We would take websites down with linking to them. It was crazy. I, I never anyway. put that, that together with, with aim and Twitter too, because like, I mean, in college, that was, that was your form of communication. Nobody, at least when I was in college, we didn't have cell phones really until the, the back end of it. You know, I didn't have one, but you know, going to lunch or going to dinner and going to the, the mess hall or whatever it is, like you're telling people like, where are you going to be? Where's the party at that night? Like your away message is telling people like, here's where I'm going to be. Um, it's crazy to think about it in that, in that sense, but. Well, and, and it was so, I mean, you think about it, like the, at that time, the level of ubiquity across how many people were using the internet was, is comparable to what we like WhatsApp, you know? I mean, it was that level of like, mm -hmm. Oh no, you can, you can hit anybody, just about anybody on this. You, you know, you can get them anywhere across different, you know, bridging different gaps. We didn't used to have just um, yeah. So many predecessors to so many things right and you know right first, like you didn't have to be on the aol proprietary service you could just have aim downloaded yeah. as a client right there on your machine and once you had it you couldn't live without it and then maybe going down from college from a social perspective into the workforce you always needed it you know i remember when i first got the comcast proper back in 2009 and i'd come from a startup in between aol this world championship Sports Network, Universal Sports, you know, Olympic kind of startup niche content. And my first day at Comcast, and this is at a regional sports network in Chicago, I was like, oh, I got to download AIM. And they're like, oh, no, security concerns. We right. can't do that. I'm like, I'm like, no, like, that's a game changer. That I was like our Slack back then. And I remember exactly. to, to get yeah. away from the, the security issue is I figured out that um, Microsoft and Windows was installing uh, MSM Messenger with you know, automatically, you just had to find it. Like it wasn't just like on your desktop, but it was in there. So I would tell everybody just get a messenger address so we can actually like communicate like, like we do on Slack now, which we take for granted. But yeah, it really all came from, I think, messenger for sure. Yeah. And while I was there, we also purchased a company in Tel Aviv, which we know a lot of innovation comes out of there and tech companies. It was called ICQ, the letters ICQ, like I seek you out. And that we kind of built that out as this kind of separate international global. Is oh, that what ICQ? Property. That's yeah. That's what that meant. Yep. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was. I mean, to use that WhatsApp analogy, it was like Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp. It was like those kind, of, you know. And and I I really think if you look at what everything that came after in the two thousands, like so much was built out of that. People who came from there that went and started other things, all of this that we're talking about, it was kind of established that first experience. Then a bunch of standards and protocols made it building blocks were out there for people to then go build their own versions of it, take that. And and really I kind of feel like then the last decade was that, but with Facebook and a lot of social building blocks and different mobile building blocks. And and now we're kind of at this other, maybe this other inflection point of whatever comes after that, right? And then the next wave with some of the early kind of things that we're seeing across, you know, now a, a whole whole range of different, you know, from from sort of blockchain to you know automation. Um, it, it, yeah, it, it, it's but it's these cycles, and it's so interesting because when we've had other guests on, you know, I think the number of people that we talked to that were part of that first wave and into this, particularly into the second wave. And so many people we talked to that were just a little ahead of their time or that did something mm-hmm. early that now is such a standard and God, if they had been podcasting back then, if they had had, if YouTube had been a thing, Oh my, Oh, you know, and um, it, you know, it's it, it, interesting to see how these things have played out across different kind of time vectors over the last, you know, 20 years. Yeah. Steve Case would appreciate your con- uh, your comment because he came out with that book about five years ago called The Third Wave, right? You know, it's sort of like, you know, you had Web 2.0 and social media. And what is that next wave? I mean, that ties in a little bit more of his wave across America to promote entrepreneurship and make sure it's not just bi-coastal. But the other thing you hit on, too, when you said earlier, old school AOL fan house, you know, I always think of the brand AOL Sports. And we were never a brand. We were a channel because the brand was AOL, right? It was so easy to use, no wonder it's number one. Now, people would bash AOL at times saying, it's like internet on training wheels. And I'd laugh and I'd be like, you know what? It's simple. It's easy to use. We were giving out hours at the time. It drove that stickiness. And you know what? It worked. So if you want to like cast stones at us for how simple it was, and people used it for different things. People you know, would just relentlessly go and check stock, but the personal finance channel was of high quality. We were the first true smart curator and aggregator and I still say today, like smart aggregation, smart curation has such a, such a value to people to go out there and harvest and handpick things because you're overwhelmed in finding it. And that's what those AOL channels did. Now we got a little bit business savvy. And on that channel, that screen, we'd sell an anchor tenant. So we did one with CBS Sports. They paid us a pretty dime. And then the leagues, this is at a time when ESPN.com programmed all the league sites. And by the, the you would never go to a league site outside of maybe some stats or a schedule. And the leagues were starting to think like, wow, if we own content, and they were starting to think about linear TV channels. So NBA was the first out of the gate to launch NBA TV. And then we started cutting all these league deals. The reason AOL cut league deals, and we spent money to the leagues, because of course, the leagues always want money. We were threatened by Microsoft Network and Yahoo uh, and others. And we thought, okay, sports is key. Why don't we promote our keyword and put it everywhere? So much like the AOL CDs, and that was called the carpet bombing strategy by Jan Brandt, we had CDs on frozen foods. They were everywhere. We handed them out at NFL stadiums. The idea was, you know, to go and get and just capture as many people as possible. So we thought sports is a way that we should pay for that exclusivity. And, you know, we just finished watching a wonderful, you know, March Madness tournament. We had this deal with CBS and the NFL. So when you watched NFL on CBS or March Madness, you were bombarded by CBS, um, you know, sportsline.com, keyword sportsline, keyword NFL. So while they're trying to drive traffic straight, you know, almost direct to consumer through the web, we were trying to leverage our keyword to keep that top of mind because we felt threatened really more so about Microsoft was going to come after us because we thought they've got the cash, they've got the know-how and the power. They would be the ones. I don't think we maybe, I think Yahoo was the one that became more of a force to be reckoned with because they were just, again, smart aggregators and it was all on the web versus AOL was so focused on what we call Rain Man, which I learned when I first got there was our proprietary kind of software. You know, I was kind of publishing and programming a lot of AOL sports and Rain Man screens. Um, so it's just fascinating when you kind of go back, when you think about AOL and AOL sports and fan house, because I would say AOL sports was probably like the number one traffic site if you term it as a site compared to ESPN, 
Sports Illustrated. It would be interesting to go back in media metrics, little plug there for my company, Comscore. But, you know, by the way, there was Comscore and then there was RentTrack. They became one. We could talk more about that later. But media metrics was sort of like your billboard, you know, top 40, who's driving the most traffic. And AOL used to sit on there. And people forget that because it wasn't a brand. Fanhouse, because of Jamie Montram and his work became, you know, and they kind of just, I would say, smartly stumbled into it. Because they're like, let's give a voice to fans, user-generated content. And it exploded. And then they started doing podcasting, you know, sports fans live, you know. Um, I think the biggest credit to Jamie was they were just kicking around producers doing a podcast. And we had hired like a type of A, B level sports personality to do a, a radio show. And what Fanhouse was and what Jamie did with Sports Bloggers Live overtook them audience because it was like just fans talking engaging what we're doing you know what i mean like i'm saying like we weren't even talking about podcasting then so there's another sort of you know launch pad in a way so anyways sorry i gush about aol and like let the record show i met my wife at aol who's from chicago that's why i'm here so you know i i that's what I, we're here for we, we I, like the gushing and yeah. the and the and the trip down oh yeah lane. please yeah this sounds like a no and i didn't meet her like literally at love at AOL, which is our online dating area, but I like met her working at AOL. So yeah. Yeah. Trip down memory lane. Yeah. You're not going to make me cry, Don. No, it's all good. Good distinction though. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm really, it's really fascinating and it's, it's almost like I knew this, you take things for granted and now, you know, thinking back on it, it's like, Oh wow. Yeah. Uh, but everything you just talked about, about, you know, it really came full circle because we started this about how, you know, this really drove a lot of what Vox and, and Bleacher Report was doing. And he just described exactly how that was doing it. I did get a kick out of the term smart aggregation because we went from smart aggregation to Rex Chapman. So there's my, there's my jab <laughs> at Rex Chapman and stupid, ag stupid <laughs> aggregation. <laughs> um, so anyway, so it, it seems like it, you're really sort of ingrained one in the forward thinking in the tech space um, Two, you have a, a pulse on um, not just the content that's being put out there, but the mechanisms to getting the content out there and making it successful. So shifting from mm -hmm. a company like AOL, and then it looks like, you know, before you jumped into Comcast per se, it looks like you were in that NBC universal type, uh, more traditional, what you would call traditional media, at least from a legacy mm -hmm. brand standpoint. Um, you know, were you able to carry some of these things over or was it a bit, a bit of a culture shift in terms of, uh, you know, working for you? Mm. It was a bit of a culture shift, you know, and in, in between AOL and Comcast, I did a stint at a startup and I mentioned this earlier in the Olympic space. And the idea was to create a platform, a destination to cover and live stream Olympic sports outside of the Olympic games. So obviously when we think of Olympics, we think of winter games, summer games, NBC's had the stranglehold on the right since I think 1988, right? But Olympic sports, as you both know, have seasons, just like USC football, just like Philadelphia Eagles, you know, football, New York Yankees, Alpine skiing, Taekwondo, fencing. And so the idea there was to aggregate all of these sports and stream them from international competitions here in the U.S. These sports are rock stars globally, not to the level of soccer, but there's strong interest in different territories and countries. But there was never the coverage it, it kind of deserved in the U.S., so WCSN, which stood for World Championship Sports Network, um, and I went to go work there with a former AOLer who I liked and trusted, Carlos Silva, who worked at AOL TV and AOL Sports. And I thought, you know what? AOL is this huge monster of a company. Let me try my hand and go be, I think I was like the 13th employee there. Um, and what we did is we cobbled together all these rights from international federations and streamed them. You know, early morning alpine skiing, you could watch Bodie Miller and like Val Bezaire tackle this downhill mountain. And no one was doing that at the time. And the funny thing is we were doing direct to consumer, basically it felt like over the top streaming. Bam, we sat on the BAM infrastructure, MLB Advanced Media, which everyone uh, knows or knew was top notch then. They provided the sort of back end for so many different things. Uh, we had announcers in LA, uh, very much in vogue now, don't send announcers to anywhere. And I mean, I also mean pre-pandemic to save on cost. We streamed a lot of this. No one would really give us the time of day. We have a scrappy startup because we weren't a live linear TV network. So while we were so focused on digital, 
we probably spent more time chasing how to become a linear TV network, which is the opposite right now. Now you're seeing linear TV networks chasing direct-to-consumer streaming platforms. Some networks collapsing their linear TV network. Like NBC Sports or NBC Universal is like, we're out of NBC Sports Network, right? We're going to pivot to USA Network for your traditional TV, and we're going to feed Peacock, which I think is a smart bet. So that was interesting, what we were doing in the Olympic space. And ultimately, that channel, that platform became what is the Olympic channel today through actually NBC Universal. But at the time, we were the scrappy young startup. And the day I started the Olympic, the USOC announced they were doing Olympic channel. And I said, man, what a horrible decision to leave AOL. Now the USOC has got the rings is going to do it. But I like what we did. And we applied a lot of the AOL thinking to it. Um, uh, those, those what anyways, you described too sound a lot now like, say you're like Flow Network, like Flow Track, Flow Rugby, um, you know, maybe even yeah. a little the zone, right? Where they're taking these, you know, somewhat niche sports, right? I work with a couple of rugby, you know, players and I think both of those mm-hmm. channels, yeah, it's big internationally. And now we have the means to actually reach them. And if we could penetrate a little bit in the U S uh, you know, all the better. Kyle kind of reminds me of the guy from blogs of balls. One, the, the audience member that covered cricket and, you know, people are kind of laughing like, Oh, the cricket blogger. And Gary V was like, look, you got 800, football bloggers here. You got one cricket blogger, right? If he can figure out how to own that space, all the better. Same thing with you. If you figure out how to own yeah. that space, you don't have much competition there. But like you said, you might have... Yeah. Here, Kyle goes back to timing, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, it's hard enough yeah. from an executional standpoint to kind of get things right. But then, yeah, I mean, there's just been so many variables, especially I think you go back a few years, right? There, the, things have really opened up over the last few years as sort of cloud architecture and high-speed connectivity become more and more ubiquitous. The building blocks to do a lot of these things are that much more available. You would have multiple options from a streaming standpoint. You would have more fluidity in terms of that rights acquisition markets are just more efficient in a lot of places than they were. So, um, you know, I think that's, uh, again, yeah. I mean, you're, you're looking at a model that now there's a number of people big and some smaller even because you've got, you know, with platforms like Roku, you can do something like this. You can just hone in on one sport specifically and have a channel dedicated on, you know, Roku and all the, boxes and devices for five bucks, 10 bucks a month, you know, right, right idea. Just, uh, you know, the time machine arrived a a couple years too early. Yeah. I think the challenge then is the challenge now is really technology was just building a quality streaming player that didn't have buffering that could be able to deliver quality video content, depending on your connection, connection speed in 2006, 2007 is not what it is today right? So that was the real challenge, right? Now, when you fast forward, you think of today, right? Live streaming is ubiquitous. You know, we don't really think, maybe we think of it as streaming, but, you know, I would say, you know, Gen Z, the tech gen, they don't differentiate anything. They just think, you know, it's there. It's, um, it's, uh, it's instant gratification for content. But now, as more people pivot the streaming, cord shaving, cord cutting, and let's talk about live sports, the challenges, and this has been talked about recently, and there's been I think some panels this week is, is latency, right? So if all of us are kind of game watching together, you know, Kyle's in Austin, Don's in Jersey, I'm in Chicago, you guys are watching, you know, through your, you know, maybe Comcast or, you know, charter spectrum or traditional or direct TV, I'm streaming it. We're talking on social, we're in a private chat. There's that bit of latency, right? And sometimes it could ruin the experience, right? Because you're like, oh my God, Gonzaga just hit this, you know, 70 foot, 40 foot shot. Uh, to beat UCLA, you know, you like that, Kyle, little, little, you know, dig at them, you know, Mr. Trojans. But then here I am a few seconds behind saying, wait, wait, what, what happened? Right. Because everyone right now is talking about Don, what you talked about, the mega cash strategy that ESPN does, which I absolutely love. You got to just like social media, you got to tailor your content for the TikTok audience or Instagram audience. It's almost tailoring your sports content for, do you want the traditional baseball broadcast? Do you want the star cam? Do you want to look at the dugout? Give people so, multiple so, options, but then, yep. Go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, I, th- I thought, yeah. Oh, no, no, but I was going to say, my last point was taking all these feeds, but it's just not about the feeds. It's layering in the commentator, maybe variations of it, a chat, 
watch, watch party. And I don't mean a watch party with like thousands of people. Like if Don said, watch the Eagles Giants game with me this Sunday in a private chat, I'm in because I don't want my comments about the Philadelphia Eagles to be public. I'm a super fan. I would never put those comments out there, but I would certainly participate in a, a watch party with him. And then if you layer in betting, you know, we can do some side bets or betting against groups. Absolutely. I was thinking about this with the Amazons, right? So with Thursday Night Football, like if I'm streaming an Amazon Eagles game, I'm saying against the LA Rams and they're saying, hey, for you, TK Gore, since you're an Eagles fan, we'll give you this exclusive offer on some on-field gear. You know, I'm in, right? I mean, I keep thinking Sunday ticket is ripe and that's a whole other discussion for him. But I just read this article in the New York Post. I think it's Andrew Martian. And it was like, you're, you know, your game, your way. And I think that we knew we're going there to this contextualization, personalization. But I think now with technology and speed, you can actually deliver these things if you solve the latency thing, which ultimately will be solved. Uh, so so my I, I fully agree with with all of the you know points around personalization, around different ways to view a broadcast. Just and, and look, some of this even extends into when, when you go to a game. There are just so many things that we as lifelong sports fans just take for granted or just take as status quo. It's always like this that when you, you start to go, but why? You don't have to do it that way. You don't have to, sh-, you know, that's my one area where sometimes when latency comes up so much that uh, there's times where it can feel a little bit from, from the industry, not, I'm not trying to go after you as, as mm-hmm. the cop out in that. I think a lot of the audiences we're missing today. It's not like latency in the, the next gen issues that are going to keep it's It's just coming up with compelling things. If you talked about like the TikTok Instagram generation, I mean, they're just, they're not watching games, you know, it's not that you can't even, you're not even at the place of getting them to tune in to go, Oh, cool. This, Oh man, that, my friend spoiled the Gonzaga game winner for me. You know, like they're just, so I think step, to me, step one is more, is more Nickelodeon experiments and more really leaning into what you can do mm-hmm. with those over digital. And maybe some of that lies both because it's easier to do right standpoint and because maybe it lends itself more to some of these sports that aren't as popular here. And you maybe the, the mashup becomes taking something like cricket and some of the learnings we have from F1 around storytelling. And then some of these things that we can do in broadcast really cool things we can do if we, if we're okay with a 20 second lag time or a whatever mm-hmm. that, that while we, you know, let's establish some of the things we want as the pipe gets bigger. That's I, and I just, I say that because I, I think a lot of what you're describing is so exciting. And yeah, for some of us who are the, the ones who want it the most, um, this latency issue is going to, going to really hold it back. But I think there's a lot of people, the, a, a bigger, much bigger pie that just mm-hmm. let's try some of these things sooner than later, you know? Um, yeah. Well, you hit on the other huge challenge and it's a bigger challenge of technology. It's the young, the younger generation and their willingness to pay attention. And, you know, my kids are 13, soon to be 12 and nine. And my soon to be 12 year old, my son, he's focused on Roblox, Minecraft, gaming with his friends and it's communal, right? They, they get on headsets, they talk to each other. It's like the virtual playground. It really worked out well early in the pandemic for socialization, which is key for children. But the thing is, that is his mindset. It could be the biggest game on here, you know, and I'm raising to be Chicago fans, but you know, they have some fandom for the Eagles. The Bear Saints game was exciting from a Nickelodeon standpoint, but I literally had to put them in front of the TV and make them watch it. It's hard. That's where their time goes. It's not, you know, growing up with three, four channels, stick and ball sports rules. It's the only thing on. You're playing sports. You're wearing the gear. You're out there. There are so many alternatives in this world and gaming and Pokemon and all these other things going on virtually is just stealing away mindshare of these teams, whether you're the Yankees or the Cubs. And it's really, really hard for them to connect. You know, maybe you get them in the ballpark and you sell them early on and they get that logo and they get that piece of gear and they're fans for life. And they're like, they look at that logo and it means something. It's a memory. But if they're, if they don't have the ability to go there, how are they going to get to that property and what they're doing in that social media channel? You know, and I know the leagues are trying and agencies are trying with them, but that's so hard right now because I'm, I'm literally watching it every single day here where I'm like, oh my God, there's this huge game on. They're like, eh, you know? Yeah. 
move on. No, I, well, you look, I mean, you just look at where we started, where the sort of like tools of the fan were, you know, like a newspaper and reading box scores each morning and TV, you know, there's this very limited set. And then, you know, you kept, you keep piling on more things and, you know, from, from blogs to newsletters to podcast, like, I mean, just, you know, and for each of us, it's some different mix of that. That's how we use what I, you know, increasingly kind of look at as like a, our own, operating systems for fan our fandom right and some people care a lot mm-hmm. more about investment sides of things and so i'm a fan but i'm also a fan in a a betting way uh collectibles way uh, i buy i keep season tickets to a team that i like but i only go to about one game a year and i just sell the rest and like i i know a guy who buys season tickets typically like three or four teams across the country where he's just betting on these guys are going to have a bigger year than expected. And these tickets are going to be a good deal. Like people, they're going to be a hot ticket later in the year. Like, if, you know, right. and I just, and I think on top of all that, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on some of this, but the last five years, but especially like the last two, that operating system with which everybody might connect to culture and where they need to connect to sports just proliferated like 10 X, like the, the developers, the, the, you know, the, the app store for fandom in, and for the ways, you know, accelerated by the last year and a half. But now if I'm a, if I'm a, if I'm trying to connect around sports, you just named it. Like I, I probably need to think about my roadblock strategy and I need to, th- and, and these things kind of need to work seamlessly, not just a bunch of disparate channels, but like what's, my daughter's yeah. literally been shaming me on Instagram every day until I play Minecraft with her. And you know what? Yesterday when I said we went out shopping, I was talking to you guys before that, she was getting like apparel so she could make clothing, not for a sports team, but like for like the YouTuber that she watches, right? So it, it does go all to that attention. And it's funny because TK, you mentioned those those three channels that you had to kind of pick from. And Kyle, I remember it was like Beckett, Sports Illustrated slash Sports Illustrated for Kids and like Baseball Digest, right? That little weird square thing and pouring through stats mm-hmm. and block, you know, you know, that was it. Like you, it was tangible stuff that you can basically get your hands on. It wasn't just like this instantaneous, like, what can I go do? It was, it was just a different form of entertainment. And I remember I have like some, some cousins that are just out of college now. So they're much younger than me. And I remember they 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 would collect Pokemon cards, and that drove me nuts because I have locker foot lockers and foot lockers full of like baseball cards. So there was even that like shift there too. It was like the sacredness of like sports cards, which then was like Pokemon and all these other like random collectible gaming things. Which again, it was just entertainment. It was a different form of collectible slash entertainment that wasn't in my purview. So, going back in that time, is it like the the it's like old school economics. It's like scarcity drives demand. So while live games were on, you know, three to four channels, local market, you know, wherever you grew up, your, your, your favorite team, you know, it was very limited. Right. And so you're excited because it was appointment TV to maybe watch it. And it's also generational because maybe your parents and your grandparents. So it becomes kind of family, right? It's like, Don, I always say like, I'm a Philadelphia fan. It's a religion, you know, and people are like, you know, and anyone can, you know, people from Boston, people from New York, um, anyone in a sports town can understand, like it's in my blood. It, it's a religion, but it's a religion because it's, it's communal. It was a way to sort of connect within my family and watch something together in the living room. Much like if you think about pre TV gathering around a radio to listen to a ball game, right? It was this in the living room experience. You know, now while we all may be in the living room, our families and kids and wives, come on, we're all on devices. There might be something on the screen. We're all in our little sort of digital ecosystems. So I think back to when I was a kid, I craved to get a new pack of baseball cards or football cards. In fact, I collected all those little miniature helmets that you could go and put like 25 cents in. And it was, it, it was like a hunt in a way. And maybe that's why Pokemon is successful because it's like, got to catch them all. I was hunting for these little football helmets, you know, and I'd be like, oh, I really need the Bengals. I'm not a Bengals fan, but I needed that to complete my collection and my division. And well, even on the card side, getting I, those packs, I remember it was the 1990 Donruss set. There was a, there was a corner store near us and I would just buy pack and pack mm-hmm. and pack. And I was just trying to complete the set through 
packs, right? It was, it was the hunt. It was right. the game. It was community. Then you're trading. There's your communal side of it, right? All right. I need these, right. com- these commons and yeah. ain't worth nothing, but this kid knows I'm trying what I'm trying to do. And he's going to jack the price up and there's your supply and demand. Yeah. So if you think about it, there was that gaming aspect, we never talked about completing a set of the game or collecting helmets, but it was gaming. There was this hunt going on and it was this experience of maybe doing it with your buddies. Right. So I would say like when people always like rail on kids for like, Oh my God, I can't believe they just sit there and watch esports competitions or watch other people play games on YouTube. I'm like, are you kidding me? You're a part of my generation. I would crave to go down to the arcade or I'd go down to the Jersey shore to the boardwalk. And when punch out came out, or Spy Hunter, if there was a kid that was just so good, I would stand there for hours, right? I wouldn't, I wouldn't have the courage to go up and try to take him on because I was going to lose and lose a lot of money. But I watched him and I studied him. You know what I mean? So we were already watching really good gamers back then. It's just happening on a different medium. That's why I tell people, I'm like, this is like part of our culture. When you talk about sports, we like to watch gaming. We like to watch people who are successful, whether they know a certain, like not cheat code, but a certain pattern to keep finishing all the Pac-Man or Miss Pac-Man games. It's just in a different way within our own dwellings through the internet, through these gaming platforms. It's, we would have been doing this if this was available to us then. Right. It, 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 I mean, okay. You guys call bullshit on me if I'm, but like, in some ways is a lot of behavior you would see around gaming and particularly around Twitch, somewhat analogous to like going down to a playground on a Saturday where, you know, there's going to be like one court that's just like badass. These guys could have been played in the pros game going on. And maybe you just watch for an hour. Maybe you go down to one of the other courts with the shitty nets that are falling off that are totally the B courts and you get a run in yourself. And there's this sort of like communal angle a sort of watching and shared experience angle and then a participatory angle to some extent, even if you're just cheering and participating that way, that then lends, you know, it's this kind of cycle. And I feel like that's, we, we overlook that part, that sort of, and that's part of sports big problem. It's not, Oh, there's other stuff to watch. It's that what was a near monopoly on shared experience that like had that emotional investment is gone. And, and all of these things where I can have a similar feedback loop to what I might experience watching a game in a sports bar or just watching a game where there's 50,000 people cheering the same thing I'm cheering for. Um, it's just there's so many other ways to now replicate that digitally. And I think that's this is the kind of thing that sports sort of overlooks in, in terms of uh, just the emotional cue is different from you and I walking into a room with a TV that's got a loud crowd at a moment that you know is just like, uh, oh crap, there's two strikes at the end of an inning, or this is like the final, like you just, we know it to be that. And, you know, to some extent, there's a younger generation that it might have more to do with the number of friends who've commented on something or like how lively the the chat is at any given mm-hmm. moment, how many people are the stat that tells them right away how many people are watching concurrently you might look at a tv broadcast be like wait it doesn't you don't know how many people are even watching this like does it you know it's just uh yeah sorry that's my old i don't think kind of like our podcast how many people are watching this (laughs) (laughs) yeah oh man don't tell me that that. yeah yeah now now i'm worried there's not going to be i'm not going to do enough well in plays or views compared to your other you know illustrious guests you know i'll be more of a cd D-lister. Um, <laughs> I don't. I don't think your comment is crazy because you go on Twitch. It's that virtual playground. I know I was referring it to as um, in Roblox, but it's the same thing because at the, whether it's gaming or, or like live professional sports or college sports, there is that emotional connection. And we as humans want to go watch people who perform well, who do something well. We like to go to the theater. We like to go to the opera. We like to go to the movies. We want to be entertained. I think it's more meaningful if it happens in your community, like meaning when you can go out of your house and go down to the street and you, you watch that game on that court and you're like, man, I wish I had game to get in there, but you want to watch it. And the other thing that we watch, we're entertained, but we also learn. Like I would say we're curious creatures. I tell my kid this, my kids this every single day, be curious, ask questions. And they think I'm like a big dork, like, you know, dad jokes. And I'm just like, curiosity is a skill set, right? We want to learn more. I think it's just instinctual nature when you go down to that court and even though you're entertained, you're also learning, right? So then you want to go down to the other court and maybe it's not as good and there's not as good players, but what you want to do is you want to mimic what you just saw. Just like I was a kid, I was like, 
oh man, Dr. J, Charles Barkley, like we do that as well. So it doesn't necessarily matter if it's like the, the big leagues or it's the gaming. I still think the same thing happens where maybe they're watching a really good esports team and then they want to go with their buddies and do that as well because that's impactful to them because it comes back to the thing. It's, it's human connection. It's, it's communal. You want to experience it together. Yes, you can play games individually, but I think it comes back to everything. It's, it, it's just, it's communal. When it's communal, it's more meaningful. Yeah. And that's where that kind of drives everything. Right. And, and the, the part to me, I mean, I think it gets confused. It, it, you know, we lose, we focus so much on the things like this, that where it's a behavior that was in the physical world that's migrated to the digital world. Right. Like, and there are, and you know, and so again, I would say, imagining it from the alternative perspective that's arguing for that as a benefit, you could say, Hey, I can have these shared experiences with the people they matter to most, not who was around. I can watch that pickup game or it's equivalent with the best players, not just whatever chump showed up on this particular Saturday, you know? Um, and so in those ways, the experience is better. Um, and, and to me, there's, you know, ultimately like so many things now, it's not so binary. The, the answer is somewhere in the middle. You don't want all of your experiences to live in this virtual world, even if there are some things that make them superior, like we said, and, and on the flip side, you know, we, it'd be a miss to go, yeah, let's just stay confined to our local neighborhoods when we're connected to the whole world. And there are experiences that you just, you're never going to be able to have in the physical confines, wherever you live. So uh, it's, yep. it, but uh, you know, I feel like that's a, a broad theme that we've talked about a lot here from, you know, talking to a group of people who have been very online for the most part for the last two decades, all of us as people who are simultaneously sort of, you know, learned a lot, had some successes each, you know, shared in some each other's success um, and a lot of, you know, sort of battle scars for it at the same time, right? Like, you know, as everyone's trying to adjust to just very different ways of living. So from the simple sort mm -hmm. of, oh, AOL chat rooms that we spend little contained amounts of time to, to whatever it is we find ourselves in now. So speaking of where we find ourselves in now, uh, TK, you, you got your hands in a couple different pots. Uh, you, you mentioned CompuScore mm -hmm. before, um, you know, Tell us a little bit about that, but also, you know, some of the the other en endeavors that you are. You teased me the other day on text about your sports biz buddy uh, over here. So <laughs> I know you're pretty active with sure. various organizations <laughs> and things like that within the industry. Um, so, yeah, what are you up yeah. to? Yeah, I mean, similar to like you two, I consider myself a connector, right? I don't want to say influencer because that's like I'm trying to anoint myself as like I, I, I'm popular, I'm well-known. But what I really value is like what we're doing we've connected with each other but we're connectors and we have large networks but it's not about who you know and how large your network is in terms of this volume gain you know if you want to make the analogy to social media like likes or plays or retweets but it's really just kind of like what you build what you make of it what it's like the more you put in the more you get out right so i love connecting with people because i like meeting people i like understanding them and i like helping them unconditionally. It's a genuine offer, right? Um, and that's what I love the most about being at least in the sports industry, or if you want to call it sports and entertainment industry or media industry, for the most part, people are connectors in this business, depending on what your skill set is. So to answer your question, after I sort of left the Comcast NBCU mothership, um, I spent some time teaching and consulting, try, just trying to figure out like what's, what's next, right? And I've been, my entire career has been in media. You know, I started at a regional sports network in the 90s uh, in D.C., uh, working with the Orioles, then the Bullets, now Wizards, um, in Capitals. And I, it was like, I went to, it was like my grad school for cable TV. So I learned how to distribute and negotiate linear TV networks with mom and pop cable operators. Now the industry is so sort of like, you know, it's collapsed and there's just these behemoths, which is actually interesting because now I'm, in my day job at Comscore, I work with these, you know, cable operator behemoths or satellite companies or, or MVPDs or VMVPDs, we like to call them. Um, but I've done two stints at RSNs at different times in media. One was more traditional distribution, linear TV. The other one was more focused on streaming and building a platform. And in between, I worked at AOL. 
So today at Comcast, while I'm not focused on, I'm sorry, today at Comscore, excuse me, because we work with Comcast. At Comscore, I'm not focused on sports, really. I'm focused on media, like data, viewer consumption. And so in my role today, I work closely with Charter Communications and their sort of um, consumer brand is called Spectrum, uh, large cable operator, huge footprint, in New York, LA, um, multi-states. Um, I also work with Dish Network, you know, satellite TV, as well as Sling TV, um, which is a VMVPD, um, you know, provider streaming platform. So I work with their product, their tech, their engineering people, their salespeople. I help them go out, understand. I com- we commercialize data. We help them sell addressable advertising. In fact, you'll appreciate this. TV networks are now learning and understanding how to sell like digital. And when I sell, mean like sell like digital, digital, you can sort of target your ads, whether it's display or video. And the TV industry has just been very archaic the way it has been previously measured with a major competitor of ours through like sample sizes and, and, and sort of, you know, the way they estimate things around ratings. And so what we do at Comscore is we have return path data and we're like an oil company. We go and we harvest, we, we buy oil, we take the oil, we clean it, we get rid of the bad stuff in it, and then we kind of aggregate it and we do some other things within our you know, algorithms and our data scientists and PhDs. And we have this output that shows you ratings, impressions, you know, down to the minute with exact TV commercial ratings. And so what I mean is the oil is the TV viewership data. We go to Comcast and Cox and Dish and Charter, and we get set-top box data. We get viewership data. Everything's on the up and up. PII is protected, privacy, all those things. Um, And so what we do is we collect all this data, and we have a lot of cool products and services that will tell you who is watching and when because we have the data. We're We're not making it up. It's not fake news. Uh, we know exactly who's doing what. So I actually spent a lot of time almost as like a consultant to the MVPDs and BMVPDs to work with them, to help them go out and sell, you know, use their data. But we come up with measurement solutions because, you know, we always say you don't want to grade your own homework. So if you and Kyle are running a media company and someone's buying a lot of ads and other things, you don't want to provide the measurement yourself. You'd like a third party trusted person to verify it. That's a lot what Comscore does. So we talk about like, you want to work with us to plan, transact, and measure. It's sort of this, you know, media circle. And we work with agencies, uh, holding companies, as well as the network. So it's like the buy and sell side. So I'm focused on the cable and satellite and the streamers. And it's been fascinating to learn how to commercialize data. I'm in a biz biz dev role, but it's also biz dev and account management. So it's super cool to learn that side of the business, which I had never learned before because I was more of a content strategist partner relations um product and even programmer at some point so it's like i feel like i've lived have many to think lives it's, within it's beneficial having that background and being able to you know speak the language yeah. well yeah sure yeah yeah it was a little bit they said when i first got there it's like drinking from the fire hose right it's just um super smart people with phds but just understanding data and understanding how to commercialize data and also really how to go out and build products that don't exist today based on needs. And that's the thing I love. I feel like I'm, I've become like a Swiss army knife there, a five tool player. You know, we had this one interim CEO and I remember um, he said, you know, everyone should strive to be a T instead of an I. So if you think of an I, you're kind of the straight line. You go really deep with what you know. If you're a T, spread your arms out. Maybe you go deep on one piece of, you know, maybe Kyle is just all in. He's awesome at content. And Don, you're awesome at sales, but it's almost like become a T to be able to go a couple layers deep on all these other things like tech, engineering, product, sales, programming, finance, modeling, you know, that's how you can be a success. And I think if anything, Comscore has taught me how to be a T across a lot of different disciplines that I didn't have that experience at AOL or some of the startups or the regional sports networks. So I think, again, it goes back to it's continuous learning understanding things and then working with others, you know, and I'll bring it back just to, to connecting. So um, I miss working in the sports industry, but I look at other things 
to, you know, dip my toe in the water. I'll do some side projects. I've taught at Northwestern, a sports entrepreneurship course, uh, taught at University of Chicago. Um, I'll guest lecture. I love teaching. I don't do it for money. It's nice when they compensate you. I do it because I learn as much as they learn. You know, I mentioned Tom Richardson earlier. He teaches a grad grad course at uh, Columbia University. And I've always had a chance to go and guest lecture. And I love, I mean, are you kidding me? I get to go into an Ivy League institution like Columbia and like share knowledge. But the thing is, I learn just as much as touching these kids because I do believe in, you know, continuous learning and connecting. So that's a little bit about what I'm doing now, you know, and, um, you know, just figuring out like you guys, right? Well, Trying well, to solve the world. Speaking of connecting and learning, uh, yep, blogs and balls. Before we wrap, I know we're we're kind of pushing up on some time here, but um, you know, right. some of the better memories or, or bad memories, whatever it might be, you know, just kind of again looking back at the things that we did over the last few years and your involvement in it. Um, you know, what are some things that stick out with you? Uh, the first one at Wrigley, I thought was pretty cool. I think that's the first time uh, I came in contact with you two. Um, it was 2010, a hot summer day at Wrigley. And I mentioned being on that panel where it felt like a SB nation battle, uh, SB nation versus bleach report. And my, my good buddy and former AOLer Jim Bankoff was on the panel and he was just going toe to toe with, uh, I think it was Dave from Bleacher report, which was interesting to watch that unfold. I do remember, um, oh gosh, I still follow like every day should be Saturday. Is it easy? EDBS. Yeah. 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 Spencer. Yeah. yeah. Uh, get, get, getting, getting iced. Um, because that, that's why like, it wasn't just a panel networking traditional. There was like, it was like a pop culture. Let's hang out. Let's have some adult beverages later, you know, uh, and be mature about it. And it, that's what I really loved about the blogs with balls audience and those who followed it. I think when you came back to Chicago, I was on another panel. And then one time you let me help you guys program a panel. I think we got Sarah Stain as the moderator. Uh, at the time, I remember we had Dan Katz from Barstool and Barstool was not what it was today. And I remember Dan was just taking it on the chin because people were just ripping on him more so about the Barstool content. But I think back to that day and where Barstool out, where Barstool is with, with, with Dan and Dave and Dave just, and Erica, they've just done such a tremendous job of really owning their lane and really carving out a nice niche for themselves. And then with betting with Penn, um, I like that panel a lot because I was, I wasn't on the panel. I like kind of working with you behind the scenes of bringing the right people together to spur quality conversation, quality community. Um, I loved all those panels, you know, uh, and if given the opportunity, it would be great, you know, as the world gets safer to do more of these things. Cause I think a lot of times we're zoomed out, um, and it's great to do these things, but I do think it kind of goes back to just getting out there and being communal and being human. We as humans need social interaction and it's good to get out there physically and be around people and talk to them and listen to them and spur some good conversations and learning. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully the, the originals will do something to OGs and uh, I can, I can find myself in and around in, in some way, shape or form. I can't, I can't wait till we're allowed to, uh, once again, um, you yeah. know, it, it really, it really is like doing these things. That's kind of what everybody says is when's the next one? I was like, well, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you tell me, you tell me, we'll see. Um, TK. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Uh, having you back. Awesome. Reconnecting. I know you and Kyle have been uh, chatting a little bit. I'd love to connect with you offline too. And, uh, just catch yeah. up a little ourselves. Yeah, I think uh, real quick, I think things on my bucket list, I need to go to the Trenton Diner with you because you talk about it so much. And I grew up with a big diner guy. I need to have some scrapple with my eggs. I need to go on a run with you. And then with Kyle, I probably need to attend an Austin FC game because he's a season ticket holder. Uh, and probably USC football because I got a good buddy here in, um, where I live uh, in the northern burbs of Chicago who's a huge USC football fan. So I find myself following it just to talk shop with him. That's why I can insert the fight on Kyle and he knows what I'm talking about. I'm trying to talk his lingo, but yeah, no, I, I agree. When the world's a lot safer, please come to Chicago or if I'm finally traveling back, I will let you know. Uh, but it'd be great to see you guys, but this was awesome to do. And again, I feel so honored that, and I'm not making that up and I don't mean to blow smoke, but I feel honored to be a part of this. So thank you. It was a treat for me. Well, thank you. Thanks yeah, for doing it. Glad we absolutely. continued the conversation from last week and let's keep talking. Absolutely our pleasure. TK. Oh, yeah. 
Absolutely. Hopefully until next week. Kyle, we staying on schedule now. We're back on schedule. We're back, back on, on schedule. track. All right. I'll shoot you some time. So we'll figure this out. Excellent. TK Gore, All thanks. Right. Thanks for being with us. Kyle Bunch. I'm Don Povia. Awesome. This has been the OGs. Until next week, we'll see you guys later. OGs. Oh, <laughs> Bye guys. <laughs>